Welcome to the Non-Breaking Space Show. From Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, I'm Chris from Canada. The internet's Christopher Schmidt is out, but that doesn't mean you can't enjoy the best of the Non-Breaking Space Show. In this volume, hear about Matt Griffin landing Tim Berners-Lee as a guest star in his web documentary, What Comes Next is the Future. How Dan Jurgens and DC Comics created international news by killing off Superman, you know, the first time. What the Big Bang looks like with Dr. Christine Corbett Moran and learn why to avoid hourly billing in your business from Jonathan Stark. Before we get started, there's some things you need to know. The UX Design Newsletter is a weekly list of articles, tutorials, and inspiration handpicked by Christopher Schmidt. Sign up at uxdesignnewsletter.com and have the best links of the week sent to your email. Set it and forget it with the Non-Breaking Space Show newsletter. Whenever a new show is ready, be notified in your inbox by signing up at newsletter.nonbreakingspace.tv. You can find show notes and links for this episode at nonbreakingspace.tv. Be sure to follow Christopher on Twitter at Teleject, T-E-L-E-J-E-C-T. And as always, thank you for telling others about the non-breaking space. Now, on with the show. Is there anyone that uh, you were surprised that you were able to get a hold of? Oh, of course. Like, yeah, like, absolutely. Like, who did you get a hold of that you were oh, like, no way. Tim Berners-Lee is the ultimate example of, I had never in a million years thought that was going to happen. Yeah. And it actually got shot down the first time I tried to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I talked to, um, I tried to get to him through, um, through one channel, just one friend that knew him a little bit mm. and it did not, it wasn't going anywhere. Like it was kind of, uh, he has some, he has layers of, of, uh, folks that surround him because, you know, you can imagine that if you were somebody who'd changed the world and you created the world wide web, like Tim Berners-Lee, a lot of people want to talk to you about stuff like the news requests and all of that. Right. Like if an, any newspaper is writing a story about the web and they could get a hold of Tim Berners-Lee to comment, they would. Right. Yeah. So he has sort of like layers of protection. And the first Avenue I went through, um, tried, like did a valiant effort, but it wasn't, it didn't seem to be going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then we had this incredible thing where, um, we, <laughs> Matt Braun, who works here at Bearded with me, he's a designer at Bearded. Matt Braun was at Thanksgiving dinner, I think, with his family. And his brother-in-law was there, mm-hmm. uh, half-brother-in-law, really. But he was, his, his wife's half-brother was there. Um, and and there, he's Brian, and he and Brian are talking. And I forget how it came up. I think it was because we were featured, Bearded was featured in Net Magazine. And his wife, Jen, was like, oh, Brian, you know, uh, Matt's, Matt's um, studio is featured in Net Magazine. Bearded is featured in Net Magazine. And Brian goes, that's weird. I was just featured in Net Magazine. And Matt was like, well, what do you do? And he was like, well, I, 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 I'm an advocate for, um, for JavaScript and um, do a lot of work with W3C. Um, also works for Apollo Group. And he's like, what do you do? And he's like, well, I'm a partner at Bearded um, here in Pittsburgh. And he's like, oh, that's weird. Um, hey, aren't you guys making that documentary about the web? Yeah. And Braun was like, yeah. And he was like, I also wrote the, ex- the extensibility man- web extensibility manifesto. Um, we need to talk. We need to talk about this movie. And he's like, oh, okay. So he puts me in touch with Brian. He comes over and I'm telling Brian, mm-hmm. oh, I was trying to get Tim Berners-Lee. It would have been so great, but it seems like I, don't, I haven't heard anything in months. I don't know what's going on. And Brian just starts texting. Yeah. And I'm like, like what's going on over there? And he goes, all right, um, that deal's dead. That's not going to work. They already shot it down. They refused it. I'm like, how do you know that? And he's like, well, I just texted like Tim's people. Yeah. And he's like, but I think I can fix this. Let me, let me see what I can do. And within a week, he, he um, well, he ended up going to New York to a tag meeting, um, the web architecture group, right? Um, W3C, which Tim is part of. And Brian came along and um, he's not on the tag, but 
he knows those folks. And he went and he was talking with Tim and he just pitched it at Tim. Yeah. He's like, look, Tim, it's Kickstarter funded. There's no corporations involved. This is like people's history of the web. This is the pe- people of the web making their own web documentary about the web. And of course, Tim, like that's music to his ears, right? Yeah. That's like his vision of the web. Right. So when he pitched that to me, he was like, okay, I'm in. Tell him I'm in. And so he was like, great. And he went back to Tim. Tim told his people, I'm, I'll do that documentary. And suddenly they were emailing me and like scheduling and like it just all happened all of a sudden. Oh, nice. Nice. So it was, that was amazing. But it all happened because Matt Brown's brother-in-law knows Tim Berners-Lee. They didn't even know they both worked on the web. Yeah. They've known each other for years, right? Right. Oh, man. Uh, so that was just credible happenstance. So Tim was one of them. The power of Thanksgiving, folks. <laughs> and then it was, it was terrifying, too. It was terrifying meeting Tim. I mean, he's a wonderful person. He's not terrifying, but I was. It's like meeting Santa Claus, right? Oh yeah, like like anyone, like you just like you you heard about the person, and like you said, like someone who's changed the the face of the human history, pretty and much. Anyone who's listening to this podcast, he gave you your job, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, it's it's intense. Not not to mention the fact that he like like you said, he just changed the the world. All right. So, how much of his interview is on the cutting room floor? Um, lots, yeah, <laughs> lots of everybody's is on the cutting room. Okay, floor. I was joking, but well, yeah. what did you learn from him? Like, what was anything you from his conversation? So I kind of blacked out for Tim Berners Lee's interview. Like, uh, I don't remember it. It was the end of a very long day of interviews. Uh, um, yeah. and I was definitely having a panic attack by the time like I got in front of Tim, and I spent most of it just like making sure the cameras were running, right, <laughs> and the audio was running. I was getting good levels, and the lighting was okay. And like that I wasn't tripping over cords or doing anything stupid and then just asking him questions and then smiling going, uh-huh, uh-huh, oh, that's great. And I couldn't really like process what he was saying at the time. In retrospect, it went pretty, it went pretty well considering I had no idea what was going on consciously. Um, but he talked, I asked him a lot about, of course, like the inception of the web. Um, like just explained to me how you started the web and that was pretty fascinating. And then we went through a bunch of other stuff and ended on... Um, on some of his pet uh, subjects, which is like uh, open data, linked data, um, and keeping the web open and free and away from corporate control and private control. Um, stuff that he's really passionate about. Um, so he has some good stuff. I'd say sort of the beginning, near the beginning, when we talk about history of the web, mm-hmm. and then later when we talk about where the web needs to evolve to and, um, and keeping the web open and sort of what people can do to help move the web forward. And you, no one's seen that for the jet, right? I mean, no, no, no. Okay, cool. Yeah, he's not even in the trailer. Yeah, he's that's cool. Like a special guest star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, with Tim, I mean, and his time is so scheduled that I think I got twenty minutes with him or thirty minutes. Right. And it's like you start rolling it when he walks in the room, and then thirty minutes later, someone's going to come get him. Yeah. There was no time for any right anything elaborate. Yeah, I totally wow. understand that. Yeah, it's just yeah because their time is special. Like as you said earlier, just layers upon layers just to get to him. And he was definitely booked up. Like he was there for a conference for a W3C conference. Mm-hmm. I was just actually the extensible web conference, I think. But then they were also having W3C meetings there. So it was like he was like moving between obligations the whole time, <laughs> doing real stuff, yeah. deciding what the web should be in 50 years or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You know, Nothing big. Lunch talk, you know, pretty much. Yeah. Lunch talk. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, this is this is cover the ground. Uh, you, uh, uh, how did the uh, death of Superman uh, come about? Was it was it was it also during this roundtable discussion or like? It, well, it, you know, it, it, there's a label that's been put on it, but it kind of morphed up 
I think my memory is somewhat differently. And, and that is, it had come up at a meeting or two earlier where we kind of, because one of the conversations we might have would have been, you know, what were the most famous Superman stories that, that had ever been published? And we would talk about things that way. And one of them had been the death of Superman. And I know we had talked about it at an earlier meeting and said, gee, is there anything there we could ever do? I mean, that was such a great story. How do you top it? Uh, and then going into this particular meeting, we uh, Superman 75, where the death took place, was actually going to be uh, the wedding of uh, Clark Kent and Lois Lane. But that had gotten put on the back burner because at that time there was a show called, you know, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. And, and they were going to build to that a little later. So we said, what else can we come up with? for something like that. And I know that prior to the meeting, I had mentioned it to a couple of the guys in phone conversations. I, I think we should do the death of Superman. And I went in and I had two ideas written on the paper. One was just death of Superman. And the other one was I wanted to do a story that just trashed the hell out of Metropolis because one of the frustrations I had as an artist, Superman had no one to fight, you know, whether it was Miss. Lex Luthor, Mr. Mixhez Pitalek, or Prankster, or Toy Man. I mean, it was all these guys that Superman couldn't punch. And so we were in the meeting, we were talking about different ideas. Um, it got tossed out. I think Jerry, we had talked earlier, said something about death of, maybe we should kill him. And then we started talking about story ideas. And, and what could we say through the death of Superman? Because Mike Carlin, who was our editor, said, okay, okay, so what? You kill him, and then what? What's the story? And we started talking about that. And then the idea of a monster attacking Metropolis sort of got fused in with that. Um, that monster became Doomsday. And it, it's just like, you know, building a story is not a linear process. And especially when you have a lot of people in the room, it kind of zigzags and goes like this and back and forth and up and down. But that's what we did. And the primary concern ended up being you know, what do we say about Superman when he's gone? And what we realized during those conversations is that when someone dies, you know, that's when we really talk about <clears throat> what they meant to us, what they meant to others, and what they meant to the world. And those are the stories we wanted to do with Superman gone. And it's like, gee, there are Mon Pa Kent watching on TV as Superman dies <clears throat> watching their son die and they can't tell anyone. And it was all that kind of stuff that we really got into. Yeah, and you did, definitely did, you know, thinking back all of those issues, those are the stories that you, that were really, uh, you guys did tell them. So that's pretty good. That's awesome. And so the death Superman, that did get news. I was like everywhere, like when, when it happened. But, uh, but that Superman uh, created a lot of news because I think the new 52 Superman just was just killed mm -hmm. recently. So and no one made, I don't think that made national news at all so let's just that we were we were in a particular time and place uh i think in terms of media in terms of what we were as an industry and all of that stuff where you know it could only happen that way once and uh we were accused by many of putting together a marketing stunt to sell more comics and no because as we put together the story there was no thought of marketing it and how we would do it we come up with the story first later the marketing department steps in and says you know what can we do with this we put this together as a story now i will cop to the fact that yes we hoped it would sell 
But trust me when I say no one sits in the room and says, let's do this story that doesn't sell. You know, at that point, you're cutting your, your throat. So, um, yeah, we always hoped it would get more attention, but there was no way that we ever could have seen it become sort of the cause celeb that it did or get the amount of attention it ended up getting. Yeah, it was it was pretty massive. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, I work on an experiment called the South Pole Telescope, which is a 10-meter telescope, uh, which is really very, very large dish. Um, it's the millimeter wavelength. Um, so it's more similar to a radio telescope than an optical telescope. It's not exactly the radio wavelength. Um, and with this telescope, we're observing what's called the cosmic microwave background radiation. It's the afterglow from the Big Bang, about 400,000 years after the Big Bang. Um, we can actually observe the light from then, um, which has lost a lot of uh, energy. So it's very, very faint. It's about three Kelvin, which is very cold, much colder than Antarctica itself. Um, and so you need uh, very sophisticated um, electronics, receiving equipment and environment uh, to be able to detect that. And with that, we can say things about the earliest galaxies and about cosmology um, constrained dark energy, how galaxies formed, all sorts of fundamental physics questions. And so, uh, if your 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 education is beyond me, so so if I ask you a stupid question, uh, please don't be. Afraid. No worries. All right. So so by examining this light from the Big Bang, uh, from the after beginning, are you able just to see what it looks like, or is it just the light waves, or is it like what what do you how how are you able to detect it? Was what does this data look like? And then how can you then interpret it back into realistic information or active information? Yeah. So visually, if you try to represent it, it looks actually kind of like white noise. And you have to um, go more into the statistics of things to be able to see anything in the noise. But it basically looks kind of like white noise. And that's because right after the Big Bang, the universe was mostly all the same. Uh, it wasn't like we had galaxies or clumps of stars or anything like that. But the, the tiny, tiny deviations from white noise or randomness show us where the universe was a little bit more dense um, than average. And it's exactly in those pockets where galaxies later form. Um, so directly from that, we can see that. In addition, the light has been traveling to us for literally billions and billions of years. Um, and sometimes if it intersects a certain environment, like a galaxy cluster, as the light's traveling along us, uh, its energy gets changed um, a little bit, either increased or decreased. Um, in the case of a galaxy cluster, it gets changed in such a way that it no longer appears in our data. So it actually appears as a little like hole or black spot. And we can use the size of that and various properties of that to say, oh, at this point, um, there was a galaxy cluster that was of this mass. Um, and that's very interesting uh, to cosmologists and astrophysicists. Uh, SPT, the South Pole Telescope, has been able to discover some of the most massive galaxy clusters ever seen. Um, and these are very difficult to see optically because they're so distant and so um, faint by this point, but they affect the cosmic microwave background radiation in a different way so that um, it's much easier for us to see um, than, say, in an optical telescope. Okay. Right. And then is this the only, I, I assume not, but I just want to say, is this the only t telescope that can read those microwave technology, like that, that afterglow, or is there... there 
There's a few other experiments. So there's been several in space. There's um, the WMAP mission and the Planck mission, um, telescopes exactly like ours, but in space. Um, and they are obviously much, much, much more expensive <laughs> and haven't... Uh, <laughs> um, they also have a long lead time to upgrade. So, for example, SPT is doing an upgrade next year, and they're just flying a lot of people down here to Antarctica, you know, 20, 30 scientists to perform the upgrade. You can't do that in space. So um, being on Earth does have some advantages. Um, unfortunately, we have the Earth's atmosphere to deal with, but that's one of the reason why, reasons why we're in Antarctica is that here we're very high up. Uh, the South Pole is almost 10,000 feet elevation, wow. and it's also extremely dry, um, and water moisture um, in the air absorbs uh, exactly the wavelength of the radiation that we're looking for. So if the sky was very moist, we wouldn't be able to see anything. Right. So that's a great advantage of being in space in that there's not really a moist sky to deal with, but it's also a great advantage to be here in Antarctica because we're in a desert very high up, very right. close to space. Um, I should also mention there are a couple other ground-based telescopes like ours. Uh, there's an experiment called Polar Bear, which actually isn't at the pole. It's in South America. Um, so there are other experiments trying to uh, make the same observations that we are, but we're kind of in the ideal location, accepting space. And how long is your experiment going on? Like, how, like when it, did it start at the start of your, of your stay there, or is it how long and, and when will it end? Yeah, so the telescope has actually been um, taking data and up and running for almost a decade. Okay. Um, so in various forms. Um, of course, they had to bring down a ton of material here. Everything here is flown in um, on the, the backs of giant military aircraft. And so it's there's quite no, difficult. There's no Antarctic <laughs> factory or Antarctica woods uh, that you just cut down and build a house? Okay, all right. So I guess you, do, you don't get to play... Uh, Pokemon Go on your on your on your walkie-talkie at all down there. So uh, people have uh, just as an experiment tried to see if Pokemon Go would work down here, um, and the the problem is more that um, the map coordinates. Uh, uh. Niantic didn't do a good job at this, but the map coordinates kind of break down. So if you take like one step, you're like going like hundreds of miles. So there's no chance that you're going to be able to walk slow enough to to catch a Pokemon. But otherwise, we would have a whole continent of Pokemon right. to ourselves. Right. It's probably for the best, though, because if Pokemon Go really worked on station, we'd find like some frozen scientist like <laughs> clutching their phones somewhere. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, man. True. As once I saw it, I was like, this is like a cancer inside of our business. It's causing tons of administrative overhead. The whole invoicing thing was a nightmare. I mean, once yeah, you yeah. saw what it was, there was like no end to the infection. Well, I do want to bring that up. Is like you, you call it cancer. And like one of the things you mentioned in your book is that, you know, if you do hourly and you're, uh, the, the, the bureaucracy, if you will, mm -hmm. um, one of the things I loved about it was like, even if you do try to streamline it, as much as possible with apps and uh, timers and stuff like that, there's still some bureaucracy left over and you're mm -hmm. still trying to track things down uh, and everything like that. So I just, I felt like that was like the best part is like, no matter how much you make it less painful it is still cancer. You're right? still measuring the wrong thing, right? Yeah. Like you're just, you're just treating the symptoms and I'll give listeners a, or viewers a, uh, a little thing to think about. So if they're, if you're, 
if you're just like, say you're a solo freelancer of some kind, could be anything, could be a software developer, could be a photographer, illustrator, doesn't matter, copywriter. The most you're ever going to make in a year is $140,000. You can't reasonably exceed that amount. There's only, there's only three ways to go over that. One is to work like a dog, which is unsustainable. The second is to dramatically increase your hourly rates which will make your, no one will hire you. It'd be impossible to make a case for a $300 an hour copywriter. You just wouldn't get any work. And you certainly wouldn't be busy 40 hours a week. That's for sure. At 300 bucks an hour. And the last one is to scale up by hiring a bunch of junior copywriters or developers or whatever else and trying to mark up their time. And of the three, I think the one that's, that I see people reaching for the first is hiring people. Right. They're like, oh, the way out of this hourly trap is to hire more hands. Is to get more people into the trap. Yeah. <laughs> to suck more people in and just basically, you know, mark up their time and then just try and manage it. And that's fine if you want to manage people. And it does work. Uh, that's one of the reasons it has been around as long as it has is that it, you can make it work reasonably well. It can more or less work as long as you're nailing your estimates every time. If you're, if you're coming in overestimate every time, then your life is a disaster area. So you can make it work. So it hasn't gone away. And if you are, the, if you do really want to manage people, like you enjoy managing a team and, and doing that sort of thing, running an agency and, you know, onboarding employees and doing HR related stuff and all the things that are related to managing a team, like one-on-ones and all those things, then great. That's, a, that is a way to increase your, um, profitability, your revenue and all that. But a lot of people only do it because they think it's the only way to increase their profitability. And that's the group of people who I most want to help because they're going to be bad managers because they don't want to be managers. They want to keep doing copywriting or coding or whatever they do. And they're, and it's, it's just going to be bad. Like if you're not ready to fire somebody, you're not ready to hire somebody. And most of the people I come across are certainly who start hiring the first time they first start hiring. They're like, oh, wow, I'm going to get all my friends. We're going to work together. It's going to be great. And then they have to fire one of them. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it's not so cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's definitely for sure. Yeah. Firing someone is not awesome. So for both parties. So, but, uh, cool. but the, the argument I felt like that was the best uh, for against hourly billing was the uh, one about the student taking an exam. And that was at the end of the book, actually. I mm-hmm. it was, was like, uh, which is the following criteria where you use to calculate a student's exam grade? Would you be the amount of time spent on the test or the percentage of correct answers they got on the test? Right. And I thought, I thought that was like, boom, we're done. <laughs> we're out. <laughs> <laughs> Drop the mic. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, taking longer on a test shouldn't increase your score. The teacher shouldn't yeah. be like, you know what? You got half of these answers wrong, but he worked really hard. You know, and it's the same thing with a consulting engagement. It's like the goal is to achieve some business outcome. Like if you're doing B2B sales, that's the goal. There's no, there's no, like people don't want you to write code so they can print it out and hang it on their wall and be like, isn't that glamorous? Isn't that elegant? They don't. I'm pretty sure they don't. Okay. (laughs) Okay. They're not buying code from you. They're not buying a website from you. They're not buying features from you. They're buying some business outcome. And if you this is one of, one of the problems with hourly billing is that you can get started working doing the tasks that they've outlined for you without having any idea what the outcome is or right. only the vaguest assumption of what it might be. And 
this, this is exactly where scope creep comes from. This is exactly where clients from hell come from. It's not their fault. It's your fault because you never found out where you were driving. You're just driving the car around randomly. Never ask them where they want to end up. And you're just mushing pixels around and mushing code around until everyone feels like they're happy. But that takes a ton of time and money and it's all a waste. Right. And also, if you're the one driving, but you also have like six other drivers too with the stakeholders, you know, you're never going to figure out where you guys are going. So, yeah. So if you, have you ever been in a design meeting where people are arguing for like an hour about what color blue they should use for a button? Oh, geez. Yeah. Who well, cares? I've had, like, it's a waste. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So like have people like figure that out, have the designer figure that out, move on. But uh, yeah, so uh, so how did the uh, value pricing go? Like you talked about it, uh, right. your story, like so you're running a business and you decided to talk to your uh, your business partner mm-hmm. and said, okay, so let's let's try this. So how, how did, did you, did you try it out and how did it turn out? I, we didn't. He was like, he's like, I get what you're saying. Conceptually, it makes sense. Like he got it, mm-hmm. but he didn't... Um, he couldn't see a path from where we were to where I was, this future I was painting. And to be fair, we probably would have screwed it up. So it's probably <laughs> good. He's smart. He's, it's probably good that we didn't do it because it's a lot harder than I expected it to be. But I couldn't keep doing hourly. I like I I had like a religious experience. I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. And you know you got to realize at the time my whole job was basically fighting with clients where we'd gone overestimate. That was basically my job. It was like, you know, arguing over hours, eating hours, worrying about profitability of individual resources, tracking hours, yelling at developers to log their hours. It was hours, hours, hours. Right. So all of a sudden when I had the, the sort of the, the heavens opened, uh, I was like, all right, dude, I got to go solo. Uh, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, see if I'm going to really try this out and do it. Uh, so I did that and it was amazing. Like my first year, my income doubled and I didn't work anymore. Um, my life, my quality of life went through the roof. I mean, I was miserable, you know, going through all of that. You know, it was just a kind of, I would fear the phone ringing. If the phone rang, I would just cringe. You know, it was going to be somebody who's haggling, you know, just, I got, you know, I spent all this money with you guys and I've got nothing to show for it. And we're already over budget and we're not even halfway done. And, yeah. You know, and you can you can say it was their fault or you can say it was your fault, but the end of the day is nobody's happy. They're not gonna hire you again if you ever get out of it, you know, if you've ever somehow managed to finish it. It's horrible. So that all completely disappeared from my life, one hundred percent gone. And it's the best 